The peak of Mount Washington, just a couple hours north of here, is actually not that tall, though it is the second highest peak on the eastern seaboard. As any North Carolinian will tell you, it is a few feet shorter than Mount Mitchell. Mount Washington stands just around 6,500 feet, less than half the height of the tallest mountains in the continental United States. But mountain climbers come from all around the world to this humble mountain to prepare for much taller peaks, even people who are preparing for Everest, which is, for example, 29,000 feet. The reason, a unique shape to the top of the mountain that accelerates the wind as it passes over the top, similar to the curved shape of an airplane's wing. For many years, it held the highest wind speed on earth, 231 miles per hour. The top of Mount Washington may not be very tall, but the weather is so extreme that it provides very valuable training ground for people who want to go to the highest places on earth. Athletes and other kinds of professionals in various fields do similar kinds of things to prepare themselves, to acclimate themselves to radically different environments that they will enter. Astronauts, Prepare for space by spending time underwater to better understand low gravity environments. Olympic athletes train at high altitude places like Colorado Springs to become stronger in lower oxygen settings. Preparation is essential if you're going on a long and difficult journey. Today, our gospel text is about a similar kind of preparation for the kingdom of God and the high stakes for getting it right. Now this liturgical year, beginning last Advent, we have spent in Matthew's gospel, which is chock full of parables. And those parables are not for the faint of heart. The teachings of Jesus, for indeed, the words that we heard this morning are the words of our Lord, can be cutting. They are a hot scalpel in the hands of our great physician. And when we hear difficult texts like this, we have basically two choices. One, we recoil and we reject them. Or two, we submit to them and allow for the spirit to excise from us sin that is burrowed deeper than we might expect or than we might want to know. And if we reject these out of hand, if we just pass them by, we are giving up our opportunity, an opportunity to understand what the Lord is trying to reveal to us in the word of God. And that is not what we are about at Church of the Cross. And so when we come to a difficult text, we lean in, we don't walk away. This is the first of three-week series on the judgment of God and the kingdom of God. And this week, we have a parable of the virgins. Next week will be the parable of the talents, and the final week, uh, the description of the Lord separating the sheep and the goats. In other words, we are getting to the grand finale before we enter Advent. And so, come with an open and willing heart to hear these difficult and powerful texts. This week, we have the parable of the virgins with oil lamps, waiting in the night for the bridegroom to return. For several chapters before this one, the story is set in Jerusalem, and Jesus is in the crowd. 
the parables and teachings that we had been hearing for weeks before this, and if you were reading through Matthew, you would have seen, were aimed at the Pharisees. They were public address. But here we are in a different place with different people. Jesus left the crowd, left the temple, left the wolves that are seeking even now to take his life. And we are instead on the Mount of Olives, surrounded by the disciples, his closest friends. And they ask him back in chapter 24, just before this, to speak about the end of all things, the end of the age, to explain what it will be like. Well, the next two chapters are Jesus' response. And after this, we enter into the passion, the death of Jesus. And so these parables are the very close of his teaching ministry, the exclamation point to everything in the story. They are all on a single theme, judgment. This scene is strange to us. Virgins coming and waiting for a bridegroom to open up the feast. They do not know when he will come or how long they will wait for it. But all of them have come. Five are wise and five are foolish. The wise come prepared with oil enough for their lamps. The foolish have not bothered to bring it. And the wise are ready. The, fool, the foolish caught off guard. And when the bridegroom is announced, the foolish have to go and buy oil and miss their chance to enter into the feast. And then they are locked out, unknown by the bridegroom. The wise are welcomed into the joy of the moment, and the foolish are shut out in the dark. Now, this should remind us of the parable of the wedding banquet just a few weeks ago, where a man was thrown out for not wearing a wedding garment. This is a story about the kingdom of God, about entering into the kingdom and its joy, but also about this closing door of judgment that Jesus speaks so powerfully about. And the point of the story is this. Be prepared for the day when the kingdom arrives with Jesus in fullness. Jesus himself says no one will know the day or the hour. It will come like a thief in the night. And so we have to bring enough oil. We have to be ready like the wise. And though it tarries, do not be surprised. You see, we have become acclimated to this world we live in. We have grown used to the air here. We've grown used to the gravity and its practices. We are born here. We grew up here like children of Israel born in Babylon, like Israelites born in Egypt. We speak the language here. We know the streets of this earthly city. And of course we do. It's right that we do. But we also know that at any moment this world could be changed, that our world could be changed. And we might at any time meet our true king revealed to us and to the world. Like lightning striking, what once was dark becomes visible all in a striking instant. And in this new kingdom, things will not be the same. All of the sorrow that we know now, the darkness that we have come to take for granted, will finally pass away. And the bridegroom will arrive, and with him, new creation. We are like people who know we will soon be on top of Mount Everest. 
We will soon be in the Olympics, soon be on the moon. We have to acclimate ourselves accordingly to be prepared. Now, for those of you, for those who are prepared, who are willing and hoping for judgment, this moment is vindication, purification, and joy. But for those who have made their identity within the darkness, who have built their lives and hope on this world, on sand, if you will, and are not prepared and hopeful for the radical undoing of the way things are, judgment is not vindication, it's a reckoning. And this is a theme that runs all throughout these three parables, which we will be dealing with fully in the final week when we talk about the sheep and the goats. In this parable, the obvious question is, what is the oil? And how do I make sure that I have enough of this oil so that when I meet my Lord, it is still burning? Jesus does not give us an interpretation himself. What does it mean to be prepared for the kingdom of God? What will make us ready for this new and beautiful world for meeting Jesus. Jesus may not give us an interpretation of this parable here, but he certainly has made pains to help us answer that question. What we have in the person of Jesus is someone who will be perfectly at home in the kingdom of God. It is his kingdom after all. The life and teaching of Jesus make visible what life will look like in the coming world, especially the resurrected Jesus. What does it look like to be prepared? It means that we grow in our likeness to Jesus, to love what he loves, to hate what he hates, to hold what he holds on to, to worship who he worships, and to renounce what he renounces. And one of the major errors that people make in interpreting parables is they treat them like islands, standing alone to be interpreted, interpreted in isolation. But of course, parables never come to us like that. They come to us as just a single thread woven in a beautiful tapestry of a gospel. And so when we ask what it looks like to be prepared, what it looks like to follow Jesus in this parable, to have enough oil in our lamps, we should look first for an answer in the gospel of Matthew. Oil represents preparedness. It represents light that illumines darkness. Salt, for instance. And Matthew, and in Matthew, we have large discussions of what that looks like. But I will venture to guess three essential components of being prepared as disciples. Three things that are certainly true and which give light and oil as we wait. And if they sound familiar, it's because they are. What does it mean to have oil in our lamps to be prepared? It means to be humility and love. Humility and love. I want to suggest that in inviting God, Matthew, uh, of Matthew, the message of John the Baptist rings clear. 
Repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is near. The judge. The axe is at the root of the tree. Turn to God with open hands and a broken and contrite heart. The prostitutes and the tax collectors enter the kingdom first, Jesus says, because they have repented. The brother who says he won't go into the field but repents and does so anyway is rewarded. Repentance is preparation for judgment because it anticipates judgment. Before the door shuts, repentance Ask the Lord to carry you into the feast. It recognizes that we are not going to have enough oil if the Lord does not provide it for us. And without repentance, all the rest of this is impossible. Most crucially, repentance moves the direction of our soul away from ourselves and directs it toward God. It is openness to God as Lord of our life. That is so essential. When judgment comes, only Jesus would stand on his own merits. We are going to be broken and imperfect people still. But if we are people who have clung to Jesus and said, thy will be done in me, we will be prepared for God's will to be perfected in us on that day. Our identity will be in Jesus and not ourselves when we embrace repentance. Second, humility. If we are a people of repentance, humility comes more naturally. And if we are humble, repentance becomes easier still. The two feed each other. We are people who hope in Jesus. And when we are anchored to that hope, We are released from the games we all play to feel bigger and stronger and good enough by the world's judging eyes. When we hope in Jesus, in the kingdom of God and his reign, the things that seem so pressing to us can slowly lose their grip on us. We don't have to be the smartest person in the room or the best looking or the wealthiest or the strongest. We can simply give thanks for the gifts that God has given us and to whatever degree he has given them to us. Humility is not about self-denigration. It's about attributing what strength and beauty and goodness we have to God and not to ourselves. It is not about self-degradation. It's about attributing what strength and beauty and goodness we have to God rather than ourselves. If we are practicing giving thanks to God and glorifying God through his works in us, then the air of the kingdom of heaven will be fresh and familiar. As Jesus says just a chapter or so before this, those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Repentance, humility, and the third, love. Repentance, humility are about the posture we take before God They are exercises that make us ready to walk the terrain of heaven on earth. But love is something more than that. It is the greatest of these. As I've preached before in other sermons, Jesus tells us that the first and greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. 
all of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. The biggest difference between creation as we know and new creation is the full and complete and unveiled and dangerously powerful presence of God, which is God's love unbridled. Since the fall, the Lord has shielded us from this overpowering fullness of his presence. Instead, he bends down to us in flesh, in Jesus. He hides himself in a cloud and shadow. He mediates himself to us so that we might grow strong enough to recognize his face when we see him face to face. And God is love. And when we love God, and we love our neighbor, we are inviting more of God's own life in us. As we love, we grow in our capacity to love and our capacity to have God's spirit in us. What is the oil that brings light in the darkness? Above anything else, it is love. And if we have no love, then we have not been willing to let love, the spirit, burn away the chaff of our hearts We will not be prepared for the day when only love remains. Repentance, humility, and love. These, I think, are the oil that makes our lamps glow. They are the training that prepares us for the coming of judgment, the coming of a world that is so different from our own. In practical life, repenting often cultivating humility and stretching ourselves in love will not be easy. Training of any kind is painful. But if we submit to God, we find that he can do infinitely more in us than we can ask or imagine. Let us not forget to ask the Lord for more oil and to prepare our hearts and lives for the new world that even now is breaking in around us. And at any moment, we might enter into in fullness.